You are listening to episode 70 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Peter Freeman. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I'm really pleased that you've joined me today. Uh, and today I have a fantastic interview with Peter Freeman, who many of you probably know uh, is the founder and creator of Crunch Time Coaching. And he puts a lot of fantastic content out there on YouTube and on his site and other platforms to help players improve their game. Pete is a close friend of mine in the online tennis world. Uh, and we talk a lot about tennis and uh, how to just bring more uh, great information out there for you all to learn from. So, uh, I mean, I'm really pleased to have him on. And uh, without further ado, let's get straight into my interview with Peter Freeman. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It is really an honor and a lot of fun to have uh, my good friend Peter Freeman on the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, Pete and I have been friends for a couple years now. I got to know him real well uh, through just watching all his amazing content that he has online and speaking with him and talking tennis. And he's really done a great job uh, in teaching tennis players worldwide how to improve their game. And a little bit about Pete, uh, his background. He is the founder of Crunch Time Coaching, which is an excellent site devoted to teaching tennis players how to level up their tennis games. Pete has also coached Division I college players, produced state-level and national champions, and he's been awarded the honor of USTA Georgia Pro of the Year. Uh, Pete also, as I mentioned, creates tons of fantastic tennis content on YouTube, uh, and I highly recommend that you check out his YouTube channel. And to find out any links that we mentioned on the show today, you can always go to the show notes page, which for this episode will be on at tennisfiles.com slash 70. Uh, Pete has also coached under Tony Palafox, who was John McEnroe's former coach, and Frank Brennan, who's a former uh, Stanford University coach who won 10 national titles. It's pretty good company right there. And as you probably can already tell if you've seen any of Pete's content, Pete has a huge passion for tennis and will do whatever it takes to get your game to the next level. And Pete has also had amazing presentations uh, on my previous tennis summits. He had one uh, on how to hit a monster topspin forehand on last year's Tennis Technique Summit and one on slice serve strategy on this uh, this year's Tennis Summit uh, 2018 that I hosted. And Pete also hosted uh, Tennis Con last year and Tennis Con 2 this year. Uh, so Tennis Con is an annual online tennis conference with some of the best names in the business. Uh, I know I've just blabbered on there for way too long, Pete, but uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on the, the podcast today. Wow. I got to say, that's probably the best introduction I've ever gotten from anybody in my life. So this is great. <laughs> Thank you. I so, didn't pay him too much to say that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was awesome. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours too. And, you know, to, to, to see, I know all the work, you know, putting together tennis con and, and how you do the same thing with tennis summit. And, and, uh, so 
it is it is also an honor for me to be here with you. So thanks for having me. Anytime, Pete. I mean, like I said, you're seriously probably my best friend in in like the tennis uh, world, especially online. You know, uh, always bouncing ideas off of each other, and really a pleasure to have you on. Like I mentioned, so uh, just to start, Pete. Uh, I want everybody to get a sense of um, how you got your start in the tennis world. Okay, so as far as exact, actually playing, as far as when I first picked up a racket, is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, let's go with that, yeah. Okay, so um, when I first got into tennis, my parents were actually getting into beginner tennis lessons. They, they, we, we moved to Atlanta, or I was born in Atlanta, but they had just moved. They were mostly from uh, the Northeast and... and um, so my mom would come home and teach me the lesson that she had that day. And we would, we would often play tennis together in the family room with like Nerf balls and stuff. And, and, uh, and then they bought this one like rebound net, this old school rebound net that, that used to be kind of popular. I don't know if you ever even seen one. Uh, and, uh, but they were kind of popular when I was growing up. And, and, uh, so I would, I would hit against that and, and I just loved it. And then, my family, my mom and dad actually moved up to New Jersey and I was kind of looking for a way to fit in somehow. Uh, a lot of people in my neighborhood actually love to fish and hunt and, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but that just really wasn't what I like to do. And so I didn't really feel like I fit in much with the, the kids on my block. And one day my parents found this tennis club, indoor club, because it was New Jersey said so, it was winter. So you had to play inside called Summers Point Racket Club that was about 20 minutes away. And uh, that's where I first started to really get into tennis. And, um, you know, after a couple of years of just practicing, I played my first tournament and I think I won my first 10 under tournament. And then, then after that, I kind of viewed it as like, oh, my gosh, this is like my job now. So <laughs> that's the way it happened. Wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing, Pete. And uh, who were your role models growing up, you know, when you were like hitting the Nerf balls and, the, you know, when you were playing as a 10 year old or, or even afterwards, did you have any particular role models in the tennis world? Well, the weird thing was, is I had a pretty good temperament on the court, but I had like the worst role models growing up. Like I loved <laughs> McEnroe growing up. Uh, he was probably the first one I really started to watch and like would live and die if he won or lost. Like it would literally ruin my whole day or even sometimes my whole week when I was a kid. I was that into McEnroe growing up. And then uh, since I grew up in New Jersey, Charles Barkley became pretty popular. I loved Barkley. Like I had like, and, and what, he had a commercial called I'm Not a Role Model, yet he was like my role model. So I didn't really follow the best people, as, but somehow I wasn't that, I didn't behave too badly. I started to kind of behave badly in college, though. <laughs> uh, I, did have a, I did have a stint of uh, poor uh, sportsmanship, I, I must admit, but I'm better now. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, well, I, there's no way I could tell right now, but I mean, what in particular <laughs> drew you to, to Johnny Mac? Well, first, I mean, just everything, you know, it, he was... I'm actually looking at an ESPN site right now, and there's Curios. He's one of the uh, headlines. And so McEnroe, a little bit like Curios, and where you like you turn on TV, you never know what's going to happen. Like It's kind of like must-watch TV. And the only difference was is McEnroe could go through all those theatrics and still win and win consistently. So you know you're always going to see him on TV, and you never knew what was going to happen. And besides his 
his blowups that were interesting to watch, but then also cringeworthy. I mean, you know, being a McEnroe fan, sometimes you enjoyed him when you when he went crazy. And there are times like he embarrassed you as a fan. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I mean, it was just nonstop drama. The shots that he would make would be incredible, but then also he would since he he had such. Uh, amazing finesse and hit, tried all these crazy angle shots. He'd also miss a lot of shots. So uh, I mean, watching so many of his matches, he just literally take you through every emotion. And so I think that's what it was like. It's like always watching an amazing movie that brought you through every emotion possible. Maybe that's what drew me to him. Yeah, yeah, I can't blame you for that. I mean, I personally love watching people like Curios. You know, it's same same deal there with the entertainment and. Never know what he, what shot he's going to pull out of his rear end, I guess. <laughs> but um, as far as, you know, when you were playing uh, tennis as a junior, did you adopt that McEnroe, like, servant volley style, or how did you play back then? Well, yes. Uh, yes, ultimately I did. I think one thing right away, I, I, I'm a lefty, and I kind of copied his strokes. Now, looking back, I wish I would have loved Lendl more. He, I would have been a much better player as a junior, even though I was a pretty good junior player. It's like interesting, like the game was transitioning, like from from old school to modern tennis. Like Lendl, I, I think Lendl could go out there and make a good living today, you know, if we put him in a time machine. Like his strokes, his his style, I think he'd feel very much at home today with the way the game is played. McEnroe, still a very much old school, you know, continental grip on all shots, serving, coming to the net. And when I was in the 12 and unders, I think I had really good hands uh, and and I would use a lot of touch shots, but I wouldn't come to the net much. So I was a combination of like I, I didn't miss very much. And then when I got to get inside of the court, I was pretty good at drop shots and lobs and angles and things like that. As my game developed into the into like the 14 unders. That's when I became a pure certain volleyer. I even like McEnroe almost 80 percent of the time when someone hit a second serve, I was I was coming in behind their second serve. Wow, you were sabering. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was I was sabering. <laughs> McEnroe was the original saber for sure. I mean, you can look it up on YouTube. Excellent. I I will, and I encourage everybody else to. It's it's looks like a pretty fun play. Um, but so before we get into Kind of more of of your development, at, you know, as a, a player and coach, and then also some fantastic tips. I want to just ask you a fun question of mine, which is: What are three things that most of the world doesn't know about Peter Freeman? Well, we have to stick with the macro theme. I work for Tony Palafax, mm-hmm. and I gave Tony, I showed him my impression of macro, and so this is this is number one. This is number one thing people don't know, and and. Uh, and so Tony one day said, hey, John is coming in today. He's going to come into the club and he's going to hit with one of our juniors. And he told me where he was going to be set up. So I like set up and, and got ready to see Macro come in. And Macro came in. And to me, there was like an aura around him. I don't know if it was real or was this because I idolized him my whole life. But he came in and then he hit with a junior and I'm watching him hit. And one thing that he did when he took volleys is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. He'd hit his volleys, and then every time he wanted to stop the rally, he'd hit this drop shot that violently spun back into the net. It was, like, awesome. And then I had to go out and teach one of my juniors. And uh, he's out there playing this guy who's, like, 18 years old. And he's – Macro's probably around my age right now, like 46 or something like that. Or, 
and he's dropping F-bombs like crazy in there. <laughs> and I'm like, I cannot believe that McEnroe retired. He's playing a kid. I'm teaching a kid. And McEnroe's there dropping F-bombs like crazy playing this guy. And then, then after uh, he finishes the match with the kid, he goes in and he uh, and he's talking to Tony. And there's one other club pro there. And, and the place is empty. So I'm like, okay, this is a good time to go introduce myself. So I went to go introduce myself to John. And I shook his hand and I was saying like, John, you, you know, I was a big fan of you growing up. I just wanted to come up and say hello and meet you. He literally didn't say a word to me. And he gave me like the fish, like handshake, like this dead limp handshake. And if, if, his, mm. if his hands could talk, he would, it would have said like, get the blank out of here. And I just like walked <laughs> away. So that was my encounter with my idol. So uh, that didn't go very well. That's one thing. Uh, another thing about me, the much shorter story is I play guitar, uh, very poorly, but I can play most songs. Um, and then the third thing is, which is kind of an, I, um, I, there's a, I have to scrounge it up at my, I think it's still at my mom's place. When I was 12 years old, I was number one in New Jersey and in the picture, I am standing next to Lyle and Eric Menendez, the Menendez brothers, because they were wow. number one in the 16s and the 18s. Uh, if you guys don't remember, they ended up, unfortunately, you know, killing their parents. And uh, I don't want to go too much into that. But yeah. anyway, I'm a, I, have a picture, I have a picture with them because they, they were also number one. Man, did so, you ever get questioned, you know, by the police or anything? <laughs> no, no. But I mean, it was a big thing because I trained at a lot of the places that they trained at. And so it was all this this talk, you know. And unfortunately, you know, that it seemed like the parents, especially the father, was very, very abusive. Did, didn't let the kids drink water in in the summertime. So, Jeez. you know, those kids went through a lot uh, with, with the parents. That is insane. Yeah. Well, those are three incredible uh you know, I guess uh, pieces of information that most of us don't know about uh, Peter. And yeah, that's funny you mentioned with Johnny Mac uh, because I interviewed Jamie Loeb on uh, episode 66 of the Tennis Files podcast. Um, and she actually trained at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy and said she would play points with him and he would, you know, curse and he would be so ultra competitive and they've had, a, they would have a lot of close calls. Well, he would you know, call the ball out when it was close and all that and try to do anything to win and smack talk. So he's pretty hardcore. But, you know, as they say, sometimes it's better not to meet your idols, I guess. <laughs> right, but, uh, exactly. But, but, you know, I mean, I don't know, Johnny. He might be a great guy for all we know. So, but uh, in any case, I wanted to kind of continue on with your playing career and just uh, to, to ask you, uh, how competitive of a level did you eventually uh, reach, um, you know, into like the 16s and 18s and whatnot? Well, all through the 16s and 18s, I was always one of the top kids in what you would call state level and and your section, middle mm -hmm. states, which uh, I believe was Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and um, I think there's one other little section in there. But anyway, so I was always in there pretty high. Um in New Jersey, I was I used I was number one, but then this other guy, Mark McGowan, great player, he took over and, and was number one. And I was I seemed to always fall into number two. Mm. But I think where I made my mistake was I went to go play junior nationals when I was in the twelve and unders, and I did really well. I I, I won a ton of rounds, 
Uh, I probably finished within the top 20 something, you know, if you like looked, you know, all the rounds I won and, and I thought, oh, this isn't that tough. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my, my parents, I, we moved away, we moved from Atlanta to New Jersey and my brother and sister stayed in Atlanta. So every time it was like time to go play nationals, it was also family vacation time. And my parents would say, hey, do you want to play nationals? which is going to be a big financial strain on us, or do you want to go see your brother and sisters? <laughs> and, and so the plan was, well, uh, I guess we'll just, I mean, I wanted to see my brother and sisters. I, I, I love them, you know? So uh, we always chose to do that. And then in the 18s, we figured, well, I'll just go play nationals in the 18s. And, and that was just a really weird period for me because everybody by then, it was like, it was kind of you could see all my friends that I had who who I qualified with. They all knew all the other players. Like it was just like another normal junior tournament for them. Where for me, I felt like like an outcast, you know. So mm. I didn't have much confidence playing those. I still finished in the top hundred nationally, but I, I think if I would have kept playing, I would have done much better as far as a national ranking, and then and then maybe would have played at a higher level. So I was always one of the top juniors. Played Division One college tennis, but I think one of your questions, so I'll just answer for you, is, you know, did, did I ever think I could become a pro? Mm -hmm. And there were a couple things that distinctly let me know I wasn't really close, and that the Nationals was one of them, you know, just seeing, you know, how I started to feel out class and like it didn't belong um, when, I, when I went, and I think it was more mental than it was talent. And But then the other thing was, is Agassi was really making a name for himself. And so he was a couple years older than me. So maybe I'm like 15, 16, and he's 18 or something like that. And he's he's becoming like top 10 in the world. And my brother, who, you know, is my one of my biggest fans, he, he like says, Hey Pete, I'm seeing this Agassi play on TV. And you know, I don't I don't think he's that much better than you, you know? And then and then I look on TV to see this Agassi guy and I watch him hit and I'm going, I'm nowhere damn near close to that and never will be. You know, that was that was like uh, a real eye-opening. Like this guy's just a couple years older than me, and he's just it's just he's just so damn good. And I'm not even close to that good, not even gonna pretend that I am. So I think really seeing Agassi play on TV and knowing that he's just a couple years older than me and how much better he was than me, let me know. I don't think you're gonna become a pro tennis player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely a little bit of like realism sets in when you when you look at all these amazing players. I, I always think of uh, Nadal, which I think he's around the same age as me. And I'm just seeing like, God, he is just like a billion times better. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm really impressed, Pete. I mean, with your uh, junior pedigree, it's really it's not easy to be ranked, you know, top 100 nationally and win several rounds in national tournaments. Um, my highest was around 200 in the nation and like number seven in, in the mid Atlantic. But um, yeah, that's, that's great stuff, Pete. And then, so in terms of, you know, you getting into the tennis world as a great coach, like how did that develop, you know, after you played tennis and went to college? It started in college, which was kind of cool. Uh, I think the first thing I it actually started in high school, I started to, no, I should say college. It started in college. I went home for the summer and I started to work at the club that I grew up playing at. I teach there in the summer. And then I would, then I started to stay in college uh, at, you know, in DC. Um, I went to American University. Do you know that? That's, that's oh, around where you are. Yeah, that's like five miles from me or something. That's yeah. crazy. 
Yeah, I went wow. to American University. So I I stayed there over the summer, and I remember making like these little flyers and putting them around a, a park. And I started, and and some people actually called me, so I started to give them lessons, and I liked it. And then when I graduated, my um, my coach asked me if I wanted to stay on and be the uh, assistant uh, men's coach. And uh, and so I did that, and I loved it. And then we actually coached against our rival team, East Carolina, and we had this, we had a couple wars, and. I guess the other coach from East Carolina liked the way that I coached against him and they got rid of the assistant coach position at American. So he asked me, he said, Hey, I, I can, you can come here and teach for our college and I can also get you a head pro position down at a local club. And that's how I got started in the, in, in the coaching. So Pete was Martin Blackman, the coach at American while you were there. Cause I know he was coaching kind of when, when I was playing college tennis. No, it was a guy by the name of Tom Maynard, really nice guy. I, I think he coached there for probably about five years, if I'm recollecting right. He was a really good coach, really liked him, and uh, learned a lot from him. Another question. Do you still have copies of those flyers? Because I need a template you know, to advertise for myself. <laughs> oh, man, I don't. I, it was just... It's really, really basic. But I did have – I had an epic thing that I did with flyers at American University. You might be able to appreciate this. They have the AW, you know, the American University uh, shuttle. And I – we had a party at our house to raise money for spring break. And I came up with a flyer that I called it Absolute Party. And I made the flyer look like an absolute bottle, vodka bar- <laughs> bottle, and we dropped them all over the campus. <laughs> And we literally had we literally had the aid that the, the American shuttle was dropping people off at our house. That's how big the party got. Jeez, that's incredible! Way to go! I, I applaud you. I mean, I'm more of a gin guy, but you know, vodka—that's fine. Well done. Um, <laughs> but that's incredible. So, another question for you. I mean, after your your coaching stint at I think it was ECU. Um, what happened next? I mean, did you go on to to another coaching job after that? Because I, I know you did mention that you, that the coach there would help you with a job uh, in in Carolina as a head pro too. But did you did you transition anywhere else after that? I went a lot of places, but right after that, uh, when I was at East Carolina, that's when my dad started to get sick. Um, mm-hmm. He passed away from cancer, and I went up to live in new new york uh my mom had a place we were from new jersey but then she had this apartment where her sister was so i lived up there and that's where i um found the job for with tony palfax up there in glen cove new york you know it's it's funny we were chatting before um you know before we started recording and you mentioned pete that uh <laughs> because and this came up because when I called you on Skype, I noticed you, uh, your picture of you in this uh, very fine suit here. And I was wondering, you know, what did, were you working at a bank or something? And you mentioned that you had, you worked at other, uh, another job too outside of tennis. So can you tell us uh, what that was? Yeah, so sure. So eventually with all my teaching, I ended up out in California as a director of tennis at Almond and Valley Athletic Club, a really great club. I actually played in the boys' 16s nationals there, and they had the girls' 18s nationals. 
And uh, I, I was the director there. And I remember a very specific time while I was there realizing like, oh my gosh, like physically I'm dying. Like I, I cannot teach one more hour <laughs> out here. And the way my contract was, I had literally hit the, the ceiling. Like I was like, I can't make another dollar. It's, it's impossible because to make another dollar, I'd have to teach another hour. And, and so it scared me. It really woke me up. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I got to get a quote unquote real world job. And that's when I got out of tennis. I started to get into a little bit of real, real estate investment. Actually, a couple of deals went good. A couple of deals didn't go great, but, uh, I ended up moving to Atlanta to be closer to my mom and to also really get into the mortgage business and maybe more real estate investing. And that was the exact wrong time to do that because things were hot for a little while and then all of a sudden it was like overnight where all the mortgage businesses are going out of business and uh, and it was just a scary, crazy time. And I ended up getting out of traditional loans into reverse mortgages, which help um, seniors use money against their house to pay off bills or whatever. And we started to get leads online. So these these leads started to come in online. And I thought, this is interesting, like, because that was kind of like a new concept to me. And then I noticed that there was um, locally this one internet marketing meeting. And, um, and so I'm like, I, I became intrigued. And so I went to that, and then the person who was giving a talk, like, you know, if you have something that you're genuinely passionate about, that you really love, that you could consider yourself an expert at, that's the best thing to get into. And so that's when that started to, like, shift my mind into, well, to teach tennis, it's not always just about being on the court, you know, every time you work an hour, you make a dollar, which is the way I thought about it previously, it opened up my my mind to a whole new world of possibilities. And so that's when I started to really study, well, how could I create a, a business like this online to where I can help, you know, just not people who come to the court, but people all over the world. And it's been so rewarding. Definitely, Pete. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the best things. It's just incredible, which I'm sure you receive a ton of these every day where people in like Malaysia and Thailand and um, Spain everywhere they're emailing questions and you know fan mail and stuff it's really incredible um, the reach that internet uh, can give uh, everybody really but um, before I uh, ask you further about that and, and crunch time coaching I'm, I was curious with the um, and this might interest coaches especially when you were um, teaching at the club and you mentioned how like you couldn't really make another dollar if you didn't work another uh i guess an, an hour more generally when when you're like a club director or a head pro do, do they just do they give you an um annual salary or do they just pay you by hour or like how is that usually structured well everybody's got to i mean there's different deals out there mm. you know so there there's like well you can you can get a percentage of the the junior and adult program you know mm. as a director uh, or you get a percentage of all the other pros. Um, my specific deal when I was working at that time, I got a certain percentage of my lesson and then I got a salary to run the program, but the, the pro, you know, the, the junior and adult lesson revenue went to the club and I basically was paid a salary, uh, 
you know, it's a long time ago, so I don't really think it matters. <laughs> so I'm going to say it. I think I, I think I've got like thirty something thousand uh, a year to run the to run the programs, and then like I don't know seventy five eighty percent of my lesson revenue. So you see, I literally was at a point where I couldn't, at least in that position, couldn't make any more money. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a tough position to to be at, you know, wherever you are, knowing that there's not, no more money you can make there. But it, 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 I just want to piggyback on that before we move somewhere else. Another thing that that is tough is even the thing that that's hard. I think about working at clubs, even if you have a great deal. I mean, some people have great deals. We we're talking to this one guy uh, who said he had a really good deal. It was so good, and he was so good at growing the program that all of a sudden he he started to make more money than the members, than than some of the members. And it was like a really nice club to where the people were pretty affluent. And again, the people didn't like that. So, you know, they, they, wow. they, first they were excited for his success and, you know, excited <laughs> to see the program grow. But then, you know, that that's another danger of when you're at, at a facility, you can start doing so well to where they're going to wait. Now all of a sudden you're making too much money. It's a little uncomfortable for the members. They don't like, it's like, even though they're not saying it, you know, it's kind of like, well, this dude's like making more money than we are, you know? And, <laughs> and so they changed his deal to where he, you know, and so that really hurts the incentive of, of really growing a program when you know your deal could be changed if you start doing so well to where, you know, you're maxing on your potential there. And uh, so it is tough to be, I think, a traditional coach in a lot of respects, that is pretty insane. Uh, that is very unfortunate as well. Like I really can't believe that that actually happened where the members complain about that. But yeah, that's how it is, I guess. Um, but another question too, I'm just curious because I think I was talking to either Scott Baxter from Player Court or um, Ian Westerman from Essential Tennis. And, and one of them mentioned that when they were teaching, another frustration was that they would teach players and then the players either wouldn't really care or um, listen to what they were teaching and they kind of wanted a more passionate uh, uh, group of players. So, I mean, did you ever encounter any issues like that when you were coaching uh, at a class? I, I still do on a daily basis because mm. I still I still I still coach. I coach right. not near as many hours as I used to, but I'm, I like to stay out there. I like to stay fresh. I'm still out there. You know, the weather's nice pretty much seven days a week. And it is a totally different animal coaching people locally than the people who are looking at online instruction. The people looking at online instruction, they are definitely going the extra mile. I mean, think about it. They're coming home. They're like, they're not satisfied. They're like, I'm going to go online. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to buy this course. Or I'm going to fly out and take a lesson from this guy because I really want to improve that bad. I mean, they are not screwing around. They want to get better. And so when you coach them, it's a much more rewarding experience. You know, I, I call them obsessed tennis players. Mm -hmm. They're totally obsessed tennis players, which is, as a coach, you love it because I grew up obsessed with tennis. So, I mean, I feel like we have this bond and it's really cool. Uh, there's the one guy who I, this is, I call it an obsession confession. I, I want to start these upset. This, this guy was a great guy. We did a lesson he comes back the next day. His forehand looks 10 times better than it did the, the night before. And, and I know, I'm like, okay, this guy like watched videos at night or he was practicing shit. He was doing something overnight because he's like better than when he left me yesterday. 
And he's like, he's like, yeah, I was watching videos and then I was even doing shower strokes. Even as I was brushing my teeth, I had a, a, a tube of toothpaste and I went to swing <laughs> and, and the toothpaste went flying across the mirror <laughs> because I held it too tight. I mean, that's what kind of people were teaching online. It's totally awesome yeah. as opposed to you know, there's one line that Rick Macy said that really hit home with me in his lesson. He, he was talking about his student, Bell, who is a great student. She's obsessed with tennis. He thinks she can go all the way. And he's saying, well, her forehand's got this little twitch. And he's like, that's okay, because she's a wild animal. Better be a wild animal than in a coma. And <laughs> when he said that, I'm like, yeah, there's so many students I teach locally where you're like, why are you here? Like, you play like you're in a coma. It's like, it, it, it can be very tough. So I totally understand where, where Ian was coming from and, and player court is there's some people where they're, they're coming and you're like, why did you just come here? You're not even, you don't even care. Yeah, yeah, it's just like I guess something for them to do to kill time. But um, you definitely want a student who's in, into it um, than just kind of checked out. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. But Pete, I mean, obviously, as I mentioned, you do excellent, fantastic work uh, with Crunch Time Coaching. So you talked about how you went to that session, uh, I think, in Atlanta, and and uh, the individual there kind of uh, advised uh, people there to think of what they're passionate about and then to pursue that online. So then can you talk more about how you eventually landed on creating Crunch Time Coaching? Well, sure. Like I do pretty much everything in my life by being incredibly stupid. <laughs> no. So... So one of the things that the guy explicitly said is if you can find other people doing what you're doing, that's a good market to get into. And if you find people not doing what you're doing, you can still become successful, but the odds go up a lot. Like if you make it, you might make it huge, but lots of people who think, oh, this is a great idea. No one's doing this, you know, Lots of times that first person, that first pioneer is the one who gets shot in the back, you know, as he's marching forward. And so I was watching this and then getting into the idea of, of doing something with, with online. And I saw Will Hamilton. Will Hamilton was one of the first ones I saw do mm -hmm. a tennis lesson online. And I watched the way he was doing it. And I'm like, this guy really knows online, you know, the online process of, of, of turning his passion into a business. And then I saw Ian Westerman, same thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, they're already doing it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach because I did become Georgia pro of the year from using a lot of the online uh, techniques as far as, but I did it locally. I started out locally. I started building what's called the landing page, which is basically a uh, a fancy way of saying a one-page website that would that would get a prospect interested in taking a lesson. And so I started to do that locally. I grew our program from basically nothing to becoming the Georgia Pro of the Year in, in about a year's time. And so I thought, well, I'll go coach other coaches on how to use online tools to grow their business. I mean, maybe even looking back at it, maybe even starting it now or a couple of years ago, there might be a really good market to, to do that for coaches. At the time, people were fascinated when I'd go do these talks. I'd went to a lot of USPTA conventions and spoke on it, and people would come up and be like, that was really interesting. You know, that's like really interesting stuff. And they would not do anything with me business-wise. So I floundered around for a while doing that. And then I noticed that a couple of the, the videos that I actually made 
for our program at Gold's Gym in Douglasville. You can even look it up. My, I think it's like beginner forehands and backhands on YouTube. My video has about 440,000 views and that had nothing to do with trying to get views on YouTube. It was just a, it was just a video for our local market to understand what we were going to do in class when we started our program. And so I started to see that some of the videos I was making were actually starting to get some views and some traction. And I wasn't getting any traction in you know trying to teach coaches how to use online tools. So then I basically said, you know what? I should listen to what I've been taught. If there's a if there's a proven market for it, there's a demand for it, and you should just do this. And so that's what I did. <laughs> wow, that's pretty incredible. The funny thing is, is I just searched your video on YouTube, and I see it, and it indeed has 435,000 views. What's funny, too, is it's a beginner tennis lesson for forehand and backhands, and I see that I viewed like 75% of it because there's like a red bar going down there. So, uh, uh, yeah, I guess this... <laughs> Uh, must have helped me going down uh, down the line there, but uh, yeah, good wow. s- good stuff there, Pete. Um, and as far as uh, you know, crunch time coaching. When did you like? How did you figure out the name? Uh, how did you come up with that? The name came from uh, the idea of I'm always thinking about time. Maybe it's because my my parents uh, are. Well, my, my dad's already passed away. My mom's 82. And, and when I was growing up, my parents were older than most of my friends. My, my mom had me when she was 36. She had four kids. Uh, you know, my youngest sibling was 10 years older than me. So time has always been something I've thought about and that we don't have a lot of it and it's valuable. And whatever we're trying to do, you know, it's always it's always crunch time to me. It's so it's always like the time is now to do it. If you if you wait, if you put things off, you know, things don't get easier the longer you put off something. And so that was the idea. It's like let's let's like do this now. It's crunch time, and I'm your coach. So that's how I came up with it. Love that, Pete. Love that. It's it's all very very true. And so, what in particular? And we did maybe touch on this a little bit, but what in particular excites you the most about um, being able to teach people uh, on an online platform versus in person? Well, I just know that they're going the extra mile, you know? Uh, In fact, just uh, this weekend, I had a lady, she drove up six hours up, six hours back down to Florida to take lessons with me. And that's an honor, you know? I don't take that for granted. I, I realize that that is not normal. It's not normal that somebody's going to drive six hours to take a lesson from you. And, you know, they're, they're, they're the people that, that are out there online. You know, you don't find that typically in your local market to where they're that obsessed with what you're doing, that they, that they get it like you get it. You know, like I want to teach people that feel like I feel like tennis is an awesome sport. I'm grateful to be a part of it. I want to be as good at it as I can be. Like when I played, I tried to be as good as I could be. When I coach, I want to be as good as I could be. So when I'm saying something coaching-wise and trying to help somebody, I want, I want them to be on my level of effort. And that's what the people are like online. It's where you know, sometimes you're teaching 
and you feel like you're you're really giving your all and you really trying to get that person next level and when you don't get that energy back it it can be very demotivating to want to keep putting yourself out there and so i found a big reward in in being able to find this community online who seem to think and feel and have the same passion i have for tennis so it's very i'm very lucky to be part of this day and age so where we can find these people for sure and we definitely appreciate you being in this space for sure uh teaching tennis players worldwide and um speaking of um you know obstacles and things what was what would you say was one of your biggest obstacles in your coaching career something that kind of maybe really brought you down uh and something that you had to overcome well i'd say it was my when i first got out of tennis you know what what when i first it was my limited mindset you know i mean even before the internet you know people like nick bater were still writing books and you know dennis vandermeer and they just had a different mindset of you know like it does it doesn't have to just be between the fence and that's how i looked at it and it was uh it was kind of a heartbreaking thing to leave tennis because I loved it, but I felt like my passion was becoming my prison. It's like I literally began to think of every time I closed that gate, I was like locking myself in <laughs> my prison cell all day and teaching and being out there too many hours. And there was all this stuff. And even with all that, I, I usually could always find the joy or the connection with almost all my students. But it was it was really the physical part that I started that started to scare the hell out of me going, man, I'm 33. I'm still young. And I feel like I'm 60 out here. Like, what am I going to be like when I'm 50? You know, there's no way I can do this when I'm 50. So that's what got me out. of That was my biggest challenge. Gotcha, Pete. Gotcha, Pete. And before we get into uh, some tips that uh, Peter's going to kindly provide, provide for us, um, what, as far as like reserving court time, cause I see a lot of pros, uh, I don't know how much experience you actually had with this, but because you were at clubs, but pros, you know, when they give lessons, like they go around like uh, and find different outdoor courts and teach tennis uh, players. And so do you know, um, you know, how you go about reserving court time to teach lessons? Because I know there's some courts where like you can't just go out as a coach and then just teach on it without getting in some sort of trouble, I guess, from the, the city or whatnot. So do, did you ever have to go through that? No, I mean, that's that's why I have been lucky. I mean, when I've taught pretty much, I've always been a club pro at a place. And so I haven't, except for when I was in college, but I mean, no one was really on those courts. So I haven't really been a maverick to where I can get kicked off courts uh, <laughs> and things like that. So I don't really know how that whole world goes. You know, as far as what usually happens at most clubs is the, 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 there are certain rules as far as like, okay, from this time to this time, the pro can get X number of courts. You block off those courts before uh, anyone else can reserve them. And, and then the rest of the membership is allowed to reserve the courts. That's typically the way it works. Gotcha, Pete. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so another, uh, and so a question for you, um, the first question regarding like, I guess, tips for students, cause you do such a great job, um, teaching players like technique and strategy and whatnot. I want to start with the serve. And so what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see tennis players make when they hit this complicated stroke that we call the serve? 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Oh man, you know, that's the thing that is so tough is the serve is it's it's so interesting like the serve when you're doing it right it this feels like one fluid motion but if you've never really done it, you know, and you're new to the game, there's so many moving parts, you know, it, it's it's hard. Like I really feel for my students and I think the biggest mistake that I see people make is the refusal to break it down into bite-sized chunks to 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 try and create the whole orchestra at once because it is just so complex a movement if if it doesn't come natural to you, especially the continental grip. I mean, no one in their right mind if they haven't had a lesson is going to pick up the racket and start serving with a continental grip. It, it makes no sense. The frame is actually facing the ball to where you'd hit everything off the frame unless you make your pronation move at the exact right moment. And so, um, you know, that's, that's another thing. Most people who pick up a racket and they're self-taught, they've then got to go through the growing pains of switching from a, from a, you know, a hammer grip or how frying pan grip, semi-Western grip, however you want to describe it to a continental grip, which is like complete opposite. So I think, for the people who really want to learn the right way, you know, it, it's kind of like reverse engineering the process is what you have to get used to. You know, rather than starting with both hands together and the traditional down together, up together hit, you should start more towards the contact point and just get used to seeing your racket go from on edge to 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 pronating to the ball until that really starts to feel natural. And also, you know, since you're doing that, you're not going to be able to stand back at the baseline and do it. You should you should be right next to the net. I really believe almost everybody trying to learn the the entire serve should should reverse engineer it, start in bite-sized chunks, start from the end rather than the beginning and be close to the net, get successful and gradually work their way back to the baseline where everybody just wants to go, "Well, my serve stinks, so I'm just going to go out there and hit tons of balls." from the baseline with buckets and you're just reinforcing your, your your bad habit you've already developed totally thanks so much for those tips pete yeah totally true i mean wh- there's something about standing at that baseline where it just gets you to think about like pr- program yourself how you always serve and so to like pete said to change the technique there you got to kind of change the environment and go up to the net or face the back fence or something Great uh, tips there, Pete. Really appreciate that. And so as far as where the power in the serve comes from, I mean, you see, you know, giant people, strong people, uh, you know, they hit a serve and they can't go past like 40 miles per hour. So where does the power, in your opinion and from your experience, come from for the serve? That's a great question, and I would love if we could like have like a, a battle royale uh, a debate on this with, <laughs> with with some some other people because uh, you know there's all this debate of is it a throwing motion is it not a throwing motion and there was one guy who even posted this on Facebook and and uh, 
he's like, I can't really throw, but I can serve. And I do believe it's very much like a throwing motion. And, and I'm going to go into this uh, quite a bit here. Um, and if you can really learn how to throw, if you're a natural thrower, I think you're going to have a lot easier time on the serve. Uh, because I think just the, just the whipping action that you get in your arm when you're really trying to, you know, throw a ball far, like a long bomb down the field, you know, I, I feel very much feels like, like a serve. Uh, now I know you're, you're rotating differently with your body at slightly different times and, and how, you know, you look at a tennis player and they say more side on as they're hitting. But as far as the way the arm is, is feeling the feel of it and the, and the, and the power and the release feels very similar. And then another thing Rick Macy talked about, which, which might be the best tip I've heard in a while. That was a big aha moment to me. He's talking about the timing of the racket drop. And he was saying a lot of people lose a lot of power because they go into their racket drop before they use their legs to explode up to the ball. And by exploding up to the ball, it doesn't mean that you have to jump. I think when people hear like use your legs and explode, they think you automatically have to jump. But he says, you know, tennis is one of those sports, and he explained it like a throwing motion, you know, one of the, one of the throwing motion sports with a serve to where most people tend to go into the racket drop before they really explode their legs. Whereas like if you look at any other sport, they naturally, when they get ready to throw, they're using their legs to explode and to facilitate the throwing motion. So if you watch a quarterback get ready to throw a long bomb, he's, he's still using the kinetic chain. Just because he's not jumping into the throw, the legs are creating the force up into the arm. You, you'll, you'll see their legs are slightly bent, then they kind of sink down. Then as they get ready to really heave that thing, You'll start to see the legs extend and then the snap of the ball out, out of their hand. And that's very much the feeling of a serve. That is an excellent uh, explanation. Appreciate that, Pete. And yeah, I, I know the exact post that you're referencing as far as that uh, debate. There were so many comments on that. But yeah, love that for sure and definitely agree. I mean, I've had quite a few players on the podcast who they've they were multi-sport athletes, um, for example, Tread Huey is an amazing doubles, doubles player and one of my buddies. He um, he played baseball and he has a huge serve. I mean, the throwing mechanics, knowing them, um, even if it's a little, little variation of this throwing motion, it, it, it really helps a lot. So great stuff there. And as far as the, uh, you know, the serve also like the sp- hitting spin. I mean, a lot of players you'll see second serve. They're just... Uh, pushing the ball over and this does have to do also with what you mentioned the frying pan grip but how can players generate more spin on their serves that's a great question i mean it, it all it all does start with you do have to have a continental grip you do have to have a continental grip and i think first and foremost one of the things you can do to really start working on the spin again is is breaking things down and we're always in a in a rush to get to the end we just want the spin serve. So we want to do the full motion and we want to feel the spin come off the racket. I, I think a way that you can really start to develop spin is to develop ball sense. You know, I think that that's one thing. You know, I grew up playing a lot of hand sports, football, basketball, baseball. 
So I have what they call good hands. That would be one of the compliments I would remember that would stick out that made me feel good as a tennis player. Is like, oh, he's got really good hands. I mean, I didn't even know what it meant at the time, but I'm just like, oh, yeah, I got good hands, I guess, you know. But (laughs) I think it was from playing so many ball sports as a kid. And so I had good ball sense. Now, if you if you put things under my feet like skis, uh, a skateboard, like I suck. I can't, I, I didn't, I'm, and I'm terrified. So to develop spin on your serve, I think you want to start really playing with the tennis ball, you know, like, like bouncing it, then trying to put a little bit of side spin as you're bouncing, you know, like if, if you're there getting the ball and you're popping it up, it's too bad this, this is a, this particular part of the podcast, but you know, like you're just hitting the ball straight up, then try and keep it going straight up, but try and cut under it, try and make a cutting motion rather than just a straight up and down motion, if that makes sense. Hopefully people can visualize what I'm saying and get good at that. Try and make, try and make the ball move a lot from just bouncing it and, and, and popping it up in your, and once you start to feel that, now you can start to feel what it's like to cut a ball. And then you can start to feel it when you go to serve. I like that, Pete. Yeah, it really is about getting the, the feel for it for sure. And uh, most important question of the podcast today, when are we going to ski for money? Is that, is that <laughs> on the table? Or <laughs> uh, Well, if you're asking that, you must be pretty good at skiing. No, so. I suck. I actually suck. Do you, do you <laughs> suck? Okay, well, let's yeah. do it. Let's go. I'm ready. It's, it's, right. It is fun. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. I mean, I actually... I started out snowboarding and this was actually in college and I was playing tennis, of course, there. And, and then at one point I fell and I felt like I was going to twist my ankles and I said, screw this. And then I didn't yeah. do it for like 10 years. But the, then I started skiing and it was a little easier. But um, in any case, great, great tip there for uh, hitting more spin on the serve. Um, and, you know, th- I'm just curious about this question. Uh What's your favorite serve? Like if you had to pick one, only one that you can use in a match, which one would it be? And why? That's a great question. Uh, easily the slice. I mean, for obvious reasons, if, if anybody watching this followed me, I, I am a lefty. So, you know, right there is a big advantage. My slice goes off the court to the backhand and can really open up the court. Uh, and there, but I think also as a righty, it's, it's a great serve to have until you really get to a, a very high level. You know, developing a kick serve is great, but. I think it's a lot harder. You have to be, I think, so much better at a kick serve to generally get that thing to bounce up and bounce high and even move someone off the court. I think that's a lot harder to do than even to have a decent slice serve and to get someone sliding off the court. I just got back from uh, Tennis Fantasies, and there was this one guy who's a a 4-0 player, and he didn't lose a match all week. And he said, it's because of that slice. He said, I, I would just bring the people off the court and the court would be wide open. And, and I would, and he was a righty and he said, I have a, like a full open court to start the point. It's like, it felt great. And the other thing about the slice serve as with any serve is really understanding once you have good control over it, it just doesn't mean that it's one serve. Like I'll hit some slice serves to where I'm trying to hit it short and slower in the box and really get my opponent off the court. Then I'll hit a slice serve that's more flat and it goes deeper in the corner. Then I'll hit a slice serve that curves into your body. So right there with this one serve, you know, there's there's three different locations I'm trying to hit on one side of the box. And I'll do the same thing on the on the do side as well. 
Yeah, that's great stuff, Pete. And um, I mean, for for anybody who didn't, I guess, uh, attend Tennis Summit 2018, Pete had just a, a fantastic presentation on slice serves. Where he's he's actually on the court with a student, and he's showing uh, he showed us all these different slice serve plays. Where, like, as he mentioned, you open up the court and you go the opposite way, or you open up the court and you hit behind the person, serving volley after slicing and. Um, if you want to actually check that out, if you haven't already yet, you can go to tennisfilesummit.com and I'll have that in the show notes, that link there. But um, I'm trying to hit on, you know, the biggest points, Pete, and I really do appreciate, again, you know, all your advice here. As far as the backhand, and you can hit on the one and two hander or either or, but what are some of the biggest issues that you see tennis players have uh, with their backhands? That's... Yeah. I mean, there's so that's another tough one, right? I mean, you're, you're hitting on the hardest parts of the game probably is, is, is the serve to do it at an advanced level. And then, and then the backhand to feel like it's a, it's an actual weapon. Uh, so we'll start with the, with the one handed backhand. Um, I think with the one handed backhand, many people don't go far enough over on their grip. You know, I, I like to, I like to, I like to call what's called the motorcycle grip to where you're holding that racket it literally feels like a motorcycle handle. So that's really going to help turn those strings down a little more. So you, you have more freedom to, uh, hit the ball. I, I think when, when you're trying to hit the ball, it's like you're almost trying to hit the ball. Like you're creating a fist at contact. And once you can get that feeling like you're creating a fist at contact, if you just do it once or twice, you'll start to go, wow, I feel like I can really crush this thing. And the ball is still going to go in. If you're coming beneath the ball, where so many people have what I call a weak grip that when they go to that when they go to swing, their strings are naturally going to be facing slightly upward as they go to hit it. So when they go to hit it, it goes like way out anytime they put any kind of acceleration on it. Another thing that people do on their one hand backhand, if they want to hit it hard, they tend to swing and open up and swing around too early. And so they lose all control over the ball where I like to give people what I call the fed puff finish where they, because Federer does that so beautifully. If you watch him in slow motion, you know you'll see he's got this huge extension where his arms go in opposite direction, and his chest is still facing towards the side. You know, eventually when he's fully done, he will come around, but it takes him a long time to get there. And I think if people would would really follow those two tips, they could start to feel more confident to actually hit the ball. As far as a two-hander goes, one thing that's interesting is I grew up in juniors. I had a two-hander, and I had a pretty good one. And then as I coached, I always had three or four, four balls in my hand, so I developed a really nice one-hand slice. And then you know, when it would be time for me to play for myself, it's like you know, what you don't use, you lose. And like year after year, I just felt less and less of the two hands. And what it was is I really started to lose the feeling for how to use my t- my off hand, my top hand, which is incredibly important. So, you know, since I was always hitting with one hand with my students, because I, you know, you, as a teaching pro, if you've ever gone to take lessons, you know, the pro usually has about, you know, four or five balls in their hand so they can keep the keep the lesson going. So I began to feel really good with my dominant hand, but my non-dominant hand started to feel awkward and foreign. So, you know, one of the things that you can go out there and do to really get get that going if you want a two-hander 
is to actually get really good at an offhand forehand and maybe start with that and then start to put the bottom hand there and start to feel the relationship and, and how to use them both together. Ah, love that tip. That's a fantastic one. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, one of the ones that will really help your two-handed back and uh, in particular getting that control. I mean, I've actually been trying to do that more myself because I have a tendency to use my right hand a bit more and then I don't get as much control and spin and, and everything really. And I hit a, a flatter backhand and I'm trying to get more spin with the, with the left hand there. So uh, great stuff, Pete. Appreciate that. And so when players have a technical problem on a stroke, let's say, you know, serve, backhand, whatever, I mean, what's the what's the approach? Like, where do they start? Do they start at the beginning of the stroke, the end of the stroke? And like, what, what's the kind of the approach that people should take uh, to fix technical issues? Well, this is one of the, 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 the maybe the, the, the holes right now in online instruction, although we are closing the gap, you know, especially when you have all these groups you can join now on, on Facebook and such where people can send in their video because uh, everybody's different, you know, it's not one size fits all, but generally speaking, I find that most people, if they have a problem in their stroke, the way to fix it is to first start with the contact point. You know, I love to, with, with my, with my, if you're going to take your first lesson from me, I have you right near me at the net. I've got your racket set up to where all you got to do is really just push your hip into the ball. And if you just get a little bit of energy of your hip going in the ball and, and, and I put the ball right in your strings, you're going to, you're going to hit a nice shot over the net. And then we start from go from contact to follow through. And then we start to work on the backswing. And then once you get more and more comfortable and confident, then we really, really start to go big on preparation. You know, once you start to want to get to become an advanced player, your preparation needs to be machine factory made. It needs to look perfect every time. And that seems to be the one thing that really frustrates players is they play tennis, they take a lot of reps, but they don't have it so ingrained to where it is, it's on autopilot. It's like, it is like being at a factory and it's the same make and model every time. And uh, I just watched a, uh, an interview with Kobe Bryant, and he talked about how he's not nervous taking the last shot in the game. And the guy asked, well, wh why are you not nervous? He's like, well, I've done it so many times. I take so many shots. He's like, he's like, if you're nervous taking the last shot, you don't have enough reps. You don't have enough reps in. He's like, when I take, when I go to practice, and Kobe was big on, he practiced more hours than anybody that was around him. I mean, that was one of the things he prided himself on. And basically he said, you know, when I'm taking my practice shots, I'm downloading data into my body. Like he viewed himself as a computer. And so when it came time to take the last shot, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the same because he's taken so many and it's perfect. And many people out there have developed who like follow online instruction and look better than their average person at the club, they, they look better, sure, but it's not perfect yet. And so when you start to get into that clutch moment of the match, that's when your stroke technique breaks down because it's, it's, it's not a perfect machine factory made computer yet. It's, it's like, it's, it's got a bunch of wonky parts put into it and it looks good, 
but it falls apart when you don't want it to. Yeah, that's really great advice there, Pete. And uh, yeah, this kind of reminds me. So I actually have an interview coming up with, um, with Dr. Joseph Parent, who wrote Zen Tennis, a uh, great book. And part of what he was in the book, which I guess I'll preview before the next episode, is that they, they talk about being able to be confident in your game technically before you can be in the zone. Um, yeah. So, I mean, at least if I'm interpreting what I read correctly, you know, it in order to to really play optimally and everything, you, you need to get as many reps as you can to the point where you, you're fine technically and, and you don't even have to think about it, which is pretty much what Pete said. So Or, or, or have zero technique. That's yeah. the interesting thing. The, 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 the player that struggles the most mentally, right? And this is why they think that they're, I, I hopefully I'm going to give people like a big sigh of relief. It, it literally is not your fault. You think that you're weak mentally because you look around the club and you see that you have better strokes than everybody, but yet you you might lose to somebody who has no strokes and it frustrates you. It's because you're on your way to a perfect stroke. You're on your way, but you're not there yet, okay? So it's it's much harder to execute under pressure because it's not perfect yet. You're on your way to perfection or, you know, as perfect as you can be. Uh, you're, you know, but 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 the person at the club who says, you know, I don't give a crap that I don't have nice strokes. I'm not trying to go to Wimbledon. And I know I've got this funky slice shot that frustrates the hell out of all my opponents and they take pride in it, they can perform under pressure because if you just analyze their stroke, it's a lot less complex than yours. It's it's got it's got a it's got a ceiling for sure. It can only go to a certain level and then superior technique that doesn't break down will just destroy it. It will it you know it, it's it's just completely outclassed. But up until even up a, up into a 4-0 level, there's some athletes that are so good that can literally go out there poking the ball and their stroke's not going to break down because they're just poking the ball and, and they have good hand-eye coordination. So under pressure, they're not telling themselves, you know, get the racket back, get the unit turn, you know, brush under the ball. They're just like, go to the ball, poke it in. And so they don't get nervous like you get nervous because yeah. they're, 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 what they have to do is a lot easier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and another thing, uh, just going back to what you said about the starting with a contact point, I think it was Robert Landstorp who coached Davenport and a couple other uh, former number ones. And I think he would actually a lot of times start them where they were almost, you know, I mean, pretty much a contact point so that they could develop um, consistency and a ton of reps. I really do like that approach when you're trying to fix um, your technique. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of players probably who are sitting at home frustrated and thinking, you know, I, I train a lot, I practice, but my game is stagnated. I don't know what to do. And so in your experience, Pete, usually what is the cause of uh, players uh, not improving? I think, and this is, this is met with love, unreal, unrealistic expectations, you know, um, that you're putting in more work than most of the people around you, and maybe you're not getting the results that you want yet. But you're probably taking – if you're going online and studying online videos and trying to get things just right, the, 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 the goal that you're 
undertaking is a lot harder than maybe a lot of people that you're competing against. And ultimately, if you can keep on this path, once you start to really get it, you will blow by your competition. It will happen. It's inevitable if you don't give up. And, but one of the things too, and Ian Westerman made a great video on this. Uh, I forget what he called. He's like, there's, a, there's an actual name for it. You know, Ian's so good with words and theories and everything. <laughs> I don't remember the name for it, but I got the lesson out of his lesson. And, and the lesson that he was trying to teach everybody is everybody always thinks that once they get to a certain level, that that's when they're finally going to be happy. When they make a certain amount of money, then they're finally going to be happy. And when they get to a certain rating, 3.0 to 3.5, then they're going to be happy. 3.5 to 4, now I'll be happy. 4.0 to 4.5. And what happens, no matter what level you get to, it were, it's built in our DNA that once we get there, we are, we are happy, we are relieved, we are proud. But then within a week or two, we're like, okay, what's next? What's next? I'm not happy anymore like this. What is next? So the people who really typically go the furthest are the ones who can enjoy the process. The ones who enjoy the journey are the ones who get the most out of everything. And, and there's very few people like that. You know, Agassiz was like that. Agassiz, you know, talked about when he became number one in the world, it wasn't about the event of seeing the number one go up there by his name. It was the journey getting there that was really the, the, what made number one possible. And that was the, the part he cherished the most. And so enjoy the journey. Don't just wait for the destination. If you're always looking for the destination, you're going to get some highs, but you're going to have a lot of lows because you're finally going to get to your destination. You're going to be super proud of yourself for a week, maybe even a month. And all of a sudden you're going to be like, just, you're going to have a, you're going to be down again because you're going to be like, this is it. Once I got here, this is all that, that it really is, is just a 4.0 by my name. You know, no one's writing articles about me all day that I'm a 4.0. It's like, it's, it's going to be very short lived. It's certainly worth trying to get there, but it's, it's not the be all end all. Yeah. Again, I mean, uh, just like many of your other, uh, pieces of advice, I love that one. I mean, you know, you could get to number one in your, uh, state and then, you know, you look up and you're like, oh man, but there's like people who are above me in the section and in the nation, you know, instead just um, enjoy what you're doing and, and be proud of your accomplishments and be grateful for, uh, what, what you have and what you've done. So, uh, great stuff there, Pete. Appreciate that. Also you, I mean, as you mentioned at the, the top of the show, you have great hands. I mean, I've seen you along with many others on your videos hitting volleys. You actually had a pretty sick volley in one of the slice serve, uh, serve and volley, uh, uh, videos there. Um, but uh, on, um, the tennis summit, but, uh, what, uh, are some technical issues you see on volleys and, and, uh, maybe how do you fix those ones that you're thinking of? Oh man, this is, this is another great question. So with volleys, it's what's interesting about the volley is it's so simple yet sometimes coaches will make you think that it's more simple than it is, which will again, will frustrate you. Becoming a, a good volleyer is not as easy as you think it is. And, and this is meant to, to, to help you and not discourage you because many coaches will just tell you, Oh, all you got to do is just stick your racket out on the volley. You know, you're swinging too much. And if you just stop swinging, you'll have a good volley. Well, 
that's unfortunately not entirely true. You know, the, the tip may may have some merit to it, meaning that you, you probably are overswinging. But with a volley, there's so many different things. And again, it comes to having uh, hand-eye coordination and, and, and ball skills. The idea of playing and getting used to catching and throwing and all those things, I think really help you become a good volleyer because you have to have excellent racket head awareness to become a really good volleyer. Like if I have a ball coming at my waist and I have my racket at one angle and, and I have it and it's set up and I hit the volley, I can maybe hit a great volley. And then all of a sudden, let's say the ball drops down just six inches or, or eight inches to my knees. And now I'm volleying, instead of volleying at my waist, I'm volleying at my knees. If I go there and I have the same exact racket at angle, that volley that I just pierced towards the baseline will probably go in the net unless I make a micro adjustment. Like I was showing a lady this weekend on how to volley. No, I was showing her how to hit a lob off a, off a return, but we were, we were comparing it to a volley. And I showed her like, look, this right here that you're doing, this is going right to the net person too low and too short. This other thing I'm doing right here, and I demo it for, I show her, like this is going, this is going to be over, over their head and, and towards the baseline. And she could barely tell the difference in my racket at angle. So really understanding that you have to understand the different racket at angles at the different levels and get used to that is very important. Also understanding when is it time to stick your racket out and touch the ball? When is it time to push through a volley? So it, it really is, is an art form that cannot be just given with one tip. And usually the general tip is don't swing on your volleys. And that's just not going to do it for making yourself like a great net player. It, it will help you make some more volleys and maybe we'll get rid of a bad habit of, of not swinging. But it's it's not all of a sudden going to make you handle low volleys better and waist volleys better and, and fastballs better. There's just too much that goes into it that requires a lot of training to really get good at the net. Yeah, it's great pieces of advice there on the volley, Pete. Appreciate that. And so what, one last maybe a question for you. Uh, what, uh, as far as tips anyway, what's one concept that you've changed your mind about over the years, you know, since you've, I guess, become a coach or even before that, that, you know, you, you believed in initially, it could be technique strategy or anything else that you changed your mind about, um, later, uh, later on. Um, there's a couple of things. I mean, just generally with teaching, I, I, I think one thing that's really cool is a lot of the online instructors are saying, look, you can win with the game you have right now. You know, if, if it's really just about winning, you can learn how to, you know, go through Will's playbook or Ian Singles domination or, you know, I have some stuff uh, and you can you can start winning matches with exactly you have right now. If you're frustrated that you're losing, you can win with just some uh, strategy adjustments. Uh, so that was one. But I think the biggest change that I've made in my coaching over the years and that's why I really like teaching the online community because they are in line with the way that I like to think. Like one thing when I was a kid, there'd be several other kids that enjoyed screwing around at practice. And I never understood that. 
I never, I'm like, how is this fun for you? But as I became a coach, I really started to, my goal every time when I teach a lesson, and and because I do still teach students who, in my mind, are not giving 100%. But you know what? That's okay. I still love them. I still have a good time with them. And we still, I'm there for what they're trying to accomplish. I, I realize that not everybody's coming to the court with the same goal in mind. And that's okay. And I believe that unless I'm just saying, well, I'm a high level, uh, you know, uh, junior coach. And so if you don't like my system, it's my way or the highway. And, and, and you can just walk out the gate right now. You know, I believe that, that, that there is a place for that. And we need those coaches. We need those coaches to coach the high level juniors. And, and if the, if the, if some kid comes in and he's not ready to work, he doesn't belong there. But that's not the kind of coach I am. I'm like, okay, why are you here? Okay, are you here because uh, you don't want to get bullied after school? Are you here to let off steam? Are you here to become number one in the state? And once I know why you're here, then it's my job to provide that service to you and to keep you in the game because you don't have to become a state champion to have tennis be a, a positive in, impact in, in your entire life. Yeah, I really love that, Pete. I mean, that's that's really what's so important is to start with understanding the goal of the player and then working from there. You know, you have to be very flexible, uh, assuming you're not in just one particular small niche like competitive juniors, you know, to, to, um, to help the student grow in whichever way they'd like to grow. So, Love that. Uh, great stuff uh, there, Pete. And so as far as, uh, you know, the incredible event that you uh, hosted and created, TennisCon, can you talk to us um, a little bit about what that event is, is all about? Yeah. So, and you do something very similar and very awesome with the Tennis Summit. And so um, there, and I don't know if it's one thing for you, but, you know, there, there's several kind of, I think, stepping stones that kind of bake the cake on tennis con. Um, number one is I went to tennis fantasies to where I'm seeing this guy who started at Steve Contardi. He started this beautiful program out there at Newcomb's ranch to where he went to a baseball fantasy camp and he thought this is a hell of a lot of fun. I want to start a tennis fantasy camp. And he looked on the map, he gets John Newcomb on the phone incredibly enough. And, uh, and John Newcomb likes the idea. The first year they, they do the program, they lose their shirt financially. And the financial backers said, you know what? This is a great idea. We're going to keep doing it. Then, you know, 31 years later, they've got Rod Laver out there. They've got 100 campers and they all love it. And they have a 70% retention rate. People love it. It's a tradition. And that was one thing. I'm like, you know, it'd be cool if I could have something that's a tra tradition, something that 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 puts my mark on my passion, love for tennis that people will remember me by. Uh, another guy who I respect a lot is Skip Johnson, who uh, is, is my manager at, at Gold's Gym. And he's actually a USPTA master professional, even though he doesn't teach anymore. And he has a, a high school coaches workshop that, again, it's about the same time, oddly enough, about 31, 32 years he's been doing this. Same thing, started out small, now it's, you know, he's, it's a tradition that he's run for 30 years. And then studying online marketing, I was listening to this one to where they were talking about how they had 
some type of, of summit or con, you know, those are like the, the hot words these days. I forget what it was called, but, uh, it was where they had the best of the best teaching people how to do online, you know, how you can grow a business online. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, that'd be awesome for tennis, you know? And then, then I saw that you were, you also had the idea and I thought, well, that's pretty cool too. That may, let, lets me know it's a good idea. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> my idea is a good idea exactly. and you did a phenomenal job with it. And, um, and then how I turned it into an event where we actually launched it at Newcomb's Ranch is, is it just hit me. I'm like, you know, I want to have a tradition. I want to make it unique. And if, if Steve would let me run tennis con out of the ranch and maybe we could show how awesome this place is too, because I want people to see this. So we, we, we kind of bring an event that's happening on the ground, but then we all, we bring all these amazing coaches around the world. I just thought it'd be an awesome idea. So lucky enough, Steve said, I think that's a good idea. Sure. You can launch tennis con out of tennis fantasy ranch. Uh, that's how it happened. Very cool. And yeah, I mean, you did just an incredible job once again. And I really enjoyed watching, you know, not only um, the great lessons that all of the great coaches had on there, but also um, like insights and videos into all those le- the legends there playing tennis and uh, practice sets. And it was really cool. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure I guess eventually... Uh, we can check out uh, that event again, uh, Pete, and I'll definitely, you know, update our audience, of course, when that when it comes becomes available. And and so also, uh, Pete, what are three books that you would gift to a tennis player to help them uh, improve their tennis game? <laughs> that's that's pretty uh, interesting. Okay, so th- first of all, one tennis book I will gift. Is open by Andre Agassi. Mm-hmm. It is it is phenomenal. Um, it's a great read, even if you don't love tennis. And it really goes to show how an individual grows up and changes, and their mind changes, and the way he the way he uh, looked at tennis when he first started to how he finished his career. I think it's fascinating. I don't think there's a lot of lessons out there from it. The but I will tell you. One thing, and that's, again, why I'm so in love with this world, is I'm way more visual than I am of the written word. So just like my online students, I am obsessed with online instruction. So, and and even if it's not tennis, I'm obsessed with instruction online. And so I really get so much of my tennis knowledge and that's another reason why I did Tennis Con is I love all the online instructors. I mean, I've learned so much from watching Jorge Capistani and his singles IQ. And, you know, I've seen so many videos that Will has done. You know, he's a master at using that board. And, and Ian, with all his passion and the way he's always got a new video up almost daily. And then you see top tennis training, Alex and Simon, who weren't part of Tennis Con this year, but they were part of it last year. And, you know, Alex just played practice points against the pro on tour and won three out of three games to seven. I mean, the quality of instruction that you're getting out there and that you've put together, I mean, you you have Craig O'Shaughnessy, who you interviewed, and he's analyzing the numbers for Novak Djokovic. 
Like you just cannot, this, you would not have been able to get this information this readily and this well packaged and put together. This didn't exist a handful of years ago. I mean, not, it, it did exist, but not as like, it's not being as well done as it is now. And the thing is, it's only going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. That is the exciting part of it all. I mean, me and you and everybody out there, we're all constantly trying to improve, you know, the delivery and the content to everybody out there um, so that they can improve. And, uh, you know, technology is evolving. There's always all these different apps out there coming out and, and, and improvements. So, yeah, it's, it's really, really exciting to see what both uh, TennisCon will bring uh, moving forward and the Tennis Summit and, and all the other content from the great instructors out there. Pete, I know we've been talking for a long time, and I really always love talking to you. A um, couple more uh, questions. Uh, really important one was, where can we follow you online and in person? Okay, very cool. So you can go to crunchtimecoaching.com, and I know we did talk about the serve and power. And when, right when you go to that, I know a lot of people like that. So right when you go to that site, crunchtimecoaching.com, you can see that you can get started with with a free ebook on seven steps to a powerful serve, and and then you know once once you are on my email list, uh, you will definitely hear from me again, <laughs> and so you will then start to get emails on other courses I have, and I I'm posting YouTube videos weekly, so you'll get to really know my YouTube channel. Uh, you'll 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 get to meet my buddy Matt Bradshaw, who helps me do some tennis instruction. And uh, has a great show called Coffee Break Tennis, and you will you will get emails on uh, you know private VIP events that we do to to finish Tennis Con. We actually had a group of eight people come into Newcomb's Ranch, and we did a we did a camp out there. Uh, I do a camp in Cincinnati where we go to the Western Southern Open together. Uh, we're looking at doing some stuff in Florida next year. We'll do some stuff in Georgia. So. I'm going to be providing my services to the online community, both, you know, online to watch and then also to uh, come on out and, and see me in person. Awesome, Pete. And I really cannot uh, recommend highly enough that you check out Crunch Time Coaching, the website, uh, Pete's YouTube channel, and definitely subscribe to you know everything that he's doing because it's really fantastic content. Uh, and he truly has a passion for helping people improve their tennis games. Uh, and, and so before I leave you, uh, Pete, I uh, really had a fun time talking with you today. Uh, my classic question, all my podcast guests is what is one key tip that you can give us to help us improve our tennis games? I think the key tip is you, you, every day is an opportunity to get 1% better and, and, and that should be your goal. Um, I watched a video series called Tom versus Time on Facebook. It was fantastic. And he really lives that. Like um, the his throwing coach who he worked with for hours just on throwing one basic pattern is saying, hey, look, when, when he's improving, it's like splitting hairs on a frog. Like it's not noticeable. But to him, it's a big deal. So a guy who is pretty much perfected the, the, the position of being a quarterback is still looking to improve. And so if you really do view this as, I think the people who are going to enjoy tennis the most and get, get the best out of it is the, the people who view it as lifetime learning. And, and 
and you can always get better. You know, even if you're not getting faster, even if you're not, we're, none of us are getting younger, right? But it doesn't mean, you know, I, I forget who I saw the other day. I think it was one of the legends, you know, who's still one of the younger legends. I forget who it was. No, it wasn't even a younger. It was Dick Stockton. Dick Stockton did an interview with Matt Bradshaw. Dick Stockton, for people who don't know, beat Rod Laver in Rod Laver's last match at Wimbledon. The guy was good. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said that he thinks his ground strokes are better today than they were when he was on the Pro Tour. So, you know, the idea that you can always get better and, and, uh, and keep improving and don't get stale, I, I think that that's the best tip I can give you. Love it, Pete. Improve every day. Please, please do that. Pete, uh, what can I say? It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for making uh, a lot of time to talk to us today. Um, I know the audience is really going to enjoy this one, a chock full of tips, whether you're a coach or a player. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing, Pete. I really enjoy following you and and chatting with you and uh, grateful for uh, your presence online and in person. And and, uh, you're working hard every day to help players improve and uh we can't ask for you know much more than that so thank you pete for coming on to the podcast and looking forward to chatting with you again soon my pleasure great job great interview i i really enjoyed it thanks pete take care all right i hope you all enjoyed my interview with peter freeman from crunch time coaching uh i really appreciate peter coming on to the show and speaking about how uh, he developed his uh, career and uh, became a fantastic tennis coach and also in providing a lot of great uh, tips for all of us to improve our tennis games. Really enjoyed that. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy the Tennis Files podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could uh, leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, which uh, if you haven't heard yet, I'm on there as well or the uh, podcast app of your choice that you use to uh, listen to the show. I really would appreciate it, uh, and it would help advance the show and the uh, rankings and consequently help uh, more people see it. So that's always a good thing. And if you'd like to check out uh, any of the uh, presentations that we talked about that uh, Pete uh, did uh, for the Tennis Summit, you can go to TennisTechniqueSummit.com or tennisfilesummit.com. And again, if you want to check out Pete's uh, fantastic content, you can either go to crunchtimecoaching.com or Pete's YouTube channel and just, of course, search Crunch Time Coaching on there. And again, I'll have all the links that I mentioned on the show at tennisfiles.com slash 70. Finally, as I often like to do at the end of the show, uh, I'd like to leave you with a quote And this one is by Kim Collins, and she said, Strive for a continuous improvement instead of perfection. Uh, That was clearly one of the messages that Pete had for us today and uh, really encourage you to have this mindset when you're trying to improve your tennis game and to enjoy the journey and the process above everything else. All right, I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. And uh, I'm working hard to pump out episodes weekly. Um, So I really do hope that you are enjoying the show. And I really want to thank you so much for all your support, all your emails that that I'm 
receiving and uh, and trying my best to respond to. I really do appreciate the su- support, and uh, that's what really keeps me going. And uh, thank you again. And uh, until next time, uh, I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.